Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I apologize for the lag in the episodes. It's been a little while since I've done one, but I'm trying to get back on track now with these. Uh, I've also been doing some side projects. I started a TikTok page in order to do some of the grammar that I'm unable to do in a podcast because the grammar I do is diagramming sentences, so it's very visual, and I couldn't think of any way I could include this into the uh, podcast, so I just decided to do that in a separate format. So that is over at TikTok. Um, I'm using the same username, Erdsteppe. Uh, if you are on TikTok and looking for it, um, that's where you'll find it. Uh, today I want to get back into literature, uh, and I want to kind of move a little more systematically through the time periods with literature. I kind of have jumped around a little bit with it, Um, but I still am keeping this more introductory, so I want to do um, some representative pieces uh, in the literature sections of each time period as we move forward. Uh, The one I want to do today is one from the Old English period. Um, Now, most people from the with the Old English period are familiar with the uh, poem Beowulf. I didn't want to get into Beowulf partially because everyone's already familiar with it somewhat if you've studied literature at all, uh, and I will get into that later on uh, in in more depth. Uh, Beowulf is a much longer uh, story poem than The Wanderer. Uh, The Wanderer tends to be something you can sit and uh, go through in one read, uh, whereas Beowulf might take you a little longer. Now, one of the things I have to uh, kind of say out front is that what we'll be talking about is a translation, um, mainly because I don't speak Old English well enough to be able to read it, interpret it, uh, and two, if I read you passages of Old English, you probably wouldn't understand what they are either. Uh, Old English is a dead language. It's no longer spoken and hasn't been spoken uh, for over Well, for about a thousand years. It went out of being a spoken language about a thousand years ago. So the closest that we have in modern times would be German. It's a dialect of uh, German. But even people who speak German would have trouble with it because it's not exactly German and it's not like modern German. It has a lot of differences. Um, But they would catch more words than an English speaker. Um, As I talked about when we talked about the progression of the English language, uh, English blended a lot with French uh, and became uh, moved into the Middle English period and was almost an unrecognizable language even between Old English and Middle English. Uh, So to go from Modern English to Old English would be very tough. Now also with doing a translation, there's always the problem that this is poetry. Poetry never translates very well, even between two languages that are living languages. Uh, There's always a trade-off you have to make when you translate poetry. Uh, You can either try to stay similar and and true to the sound of the original, or you can stay true to the meaning. You generally find that you can't do both. Uh, The closer you get to the sound, the more the meaning of the original becomes lost. The closer you get to the meaning, the more the sound of the original is lost. So if possible, it's always best to read poetry in the original language uh, and then possibly read a translation later. Now I do have one that I printed off that covers, uh, that has on one side of the page 
the Old English, and then on the other side of the page is the translation. Uh, this is at anglosaxon.net. Uh, this is a resource for Anglo-Saxon poetry and, and prose. Um, so if you'd like to look at the original language for yourself, I recommend that site to check it out. Now another problem with the Wanderer is the Wanderer, like a lot of uh, Old English uh, literature, started out as an oral poem. And so there's no real knowledge about exactly how old it is. The um, older uh, poems were often uh, not um, put into... I apologize, I was having tech technical difficulties. The older poems were um, not generally translated into written literature by people who would have uh, had the same beliefs as the people who originally wrote the poems. So when you're listening to, or when you're reading the uh, written version of The Wanderer or of any other uh, Anglo-Saxon poetry, Old English poetry, you're basically reading the version that was written down by Christian monks. And one of the things that the Christian monks would often do would be to Christianize a lot of the texts. So they would take texts that would be either Celtic or Norse um, in, in their original form, and they would write them down, sort of adding elements that Christianized them. And as you read The Wanderer, you can really start to get a sense of this is really a blending of traditions. There are some things in here that are very much Christianized, and then there are some things in here that if you've studied Norse literature, uh, Norse uh, mythology, you'll kind of see a lot of the echoes of the Norse. And so <clears throat> what we have is a little bit of a corrupted version of what the original would be, but it still holds a lot of the... <clears throat> a lot of the elements of the original, and is definitely worth reading. Uh, for example, one of the areas where uh, you can see in The Wanderer, where you can see this blending of traditions, is that in the beginning and in the middle, and then or in, in the end, and then one short passage in the middle, they kind of mention the creator as he, and mention it as, almost as if there's one creator. In other parts, it seems to be talking about uh, Middle Earth or Middle Kingdom, which is which is very much a Norse idea, but it's an an idea from the Norse that sort of gets adopted by Christianity, where they see Earth as sort of the place between heaven and hell. But that I, original idea was much more of a Norse idea uh, that kind of was blended in. And again, as Europe became Christianized, um, they kind of incorporated uh, some of the traditions that were pre-Christian. Um, if you want a good example of this, you know, this is why we have rabbits and eggs at Easter. Um, rabbits and eggs have nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, rabbits and eggs come from old pagan fertility uh, symbols. Uh, same thing why Christmas is December 25th. Um, this was the birth of Saturn, uh, the feast of Saturnalia. And so there does tend to be a lot of um, sort of rehashing of traditions. Um, for example, in the beginning of this poem, uh, it begins off, Often the solitary one finds grace for himself, the mercy of the Lord, although he, sorry-hearted, must for a long time move by hand along the waterways. The ice-cold sea tread the plains of exile, 
events go as they must. So you have this sort of mention right in the beginning of the creator. Now right from the beginning you get a setup of um, what this is uh, going to be about. It's about somebody who is an exile and that's what the wanderer actually translates as. Um, and this is if anybody's been curious where I got the name Erdstepa, it's a variation of spelling off of Erdstapa, which means the wanderer, uh, the wanderer in terms of exile. And one of the words that they use in the original that they've sort of translated as fate, um, in this that passage they translated it as events, but I've seen it other places translated as fate, is the word weird. Uh, and the word weird now means strange, but in Old English, the word weird meant fate. Um, and so this is an, another example of how you can look at words and think you know what they mean, and then you realize the meaning has changed so much that it's almost an unrecognizable definition. Um, <clears throat> so as we go through this poem... Um, you kind of get a little bit of the beginnings of what it's like to be in exile, but you also will start to get sort of lessons of how you should behave. And remember, old literature uh, was always a way of conveying culture. It was always a way of conveying how men should behave, how women should behave, how warriors should behave, how you know rulers should behave, how guests and hosts. And you see this in this poem, and this is something we mentioned a little bit when we talked about Beowulf just briefly. Um, and this is something that you'll see a lot in um, Old English literature. And Old English literature is a very different culture from Middle English and what comes later. Uh, remember we talked a little bit about with the French conquering, um, the literature moved from the beer hall to the uh, court uh, where you know the ladies and the lords would congregate. Well, this is still very much uh, literature of the beer hall. Um, so as we're going through, as you're reading through this, you'll see references to the mead hall and to things like this. And so it really starts to give you the culture of, you know, this was the culture of England prior to the Norman conquest. Um, this is, uh, it goes into a little bit of the uh, cultural uh Often I had a, to speak of my trouble each morning before dawn. There is none now living whom I dare clearly speak my inmost thoughts. Uh, I know it truly that it is men of noble custom that one should secure uh, his mind, guard his treasure chamber, his thoughts, uh, think as he wishes. The spirit cannot withstand fate, the turn of events, nor does a rough or sorrowful mind do any good. So he's kind of from a feminist perspective too you're seeing this is the idea of you know a man shouldn't be too open with what he thinks or what he feels uh, so if you wonder where this idea about the way men uh, being you know kind of closed off from everyone and having to guard themselves from everyone uh, this starts very early back even into pre-christian uh, culture so from a feminist perspective you would you can kind of see that this is much more something about uh, the education for a man and sort of leading towards how men uh, should be closed off and, and shouldn't be uh, allowing themselves to be uh, uh, understood and uh, known by too many people. Uh, a little further down, he talks about um, being bereft of his homeland, far from noble kinsmen, uh, had to bind in fetters my, innermost, my inmost thoughts. 
since years long ago I hid my Lord in the darkness of the earth. Um, so you kind of get a sense of there was a time when he actually belonged somewhere, that he was part of something. Um, but he had to hide his uh, Lord in the darkness of the earth. Basically, he had to bury him. Uh, and so now he's kind of cast out. And this gives you a little bit of the culture and the climate of um, England prior to the Norman Conquest. Um, you know, we think of the uh, Middle English period, the Middle Ages, as being turbulent. But even prior to that, it was even much more turbulent. Um, you had the Roman legions in there for a time. You had the warring tribes fighting against the Roman legions. When the Roman legions left, you had the warring tribes fighting against each other. And you kind of had different waves of immigrants and different uh, ethnic groups that were within England. Uh, you had the Celtic peoples who were there before the Angles and the Saxons, and then you get the Angles and the Saxons coming in, and then you get the Vikings coming into the north. Um, and so you have this constant instability, uh, and a person might find themselves sort of as one of the court favorites one day, and then that um, ruler is overthrown or murdered or, you know, uh, chased out of that area and now they've gone from you know being a high part of the court to being cast out into nowhere and this is something you see not only in older societies but you see this anytime where there's a lot of political instability um, with many poets that we'll talk about in upcoming episodes uh, you have people that were aligned you know we think of them as just uh, writers of literature, but these are often people who were aligned with one political party who gets cast out into exile. Um, Dante is one of these people. Uh, Dante actually wrote his Inferno uh, after he's exiled from uh, Italy um, because his uh, party that was in charge and that he was uh, a favorite of um, basically gets overthrown and he gets cast out. Uh, this is part of the reason for who Dante puts in hell. Um, Dante actually puts in hell all of the people who are uh, in the rival political party that threw them out. Uh, and these people weren't even dead when Dante writes the Inferno. Uh, so you kind of see these uh, themes come up over and over again anytime you have a lot of political instability. Um, he kind of goes back into the next a spot where he's sort of dreaming about, you know, the past. And uh, then he wakes up uh, and, and sees that he's friendless uh, and, and kind of has to move on um, into the world and leave behind all of those dreams. Um, farther down in the poem, um, this is where you get a little bit of the uh, reference to a single God. He says, and so he destroyed the city, he, the creator of men, um, until deprived of the noise of the citizens. Uh, so you have another mention of sort of a, a single creator, which to me kind of says this is thrown in there um, uh, by someone who, by the person who wrote it down or the people who wrote it down. Um, they refer to the ancient works of giants. Now this is something you'll see a lot in older English poetry, sort of the, the, uh, the idea of the work of the giants. Uh, and the work of the giants basically refers to the ruins of the Roman Empire. Rome built um, forts in, in England, and uh, as Rome deserted England um, because the empire was sort of collapsing, 
these forts fell into ruin. And uh, a lot of people, uh, if they didn't know what they were, um, because a lot of people weren't very educated, would see these ruins and think, you know, this was the work of some ancient giants who used to live here. Um, you go into another section where he talks about uh, his longing. Um, where is the horse gone? Where the rider? Where the giver of treasure? Where are the seats at the feast? Where are the revelers, revels in the hall? Alas, for the bright cup. Um, and you sort of have him going into this, again, memories of all of the things he's lost. So from a Marxist perspective, you can tell that he was part of the warrior class. Um, but he's also part of a um, warrior class who's been displaced. Uh, a little further down in the poem, uh, you get a theme that comes up a lot in uh, Old English literature. Uh, and that's sort of the idea that everything is temporary. Um, and this is something that is very much a Norse idea. Um, because the Norse gods, unlike uh, the other gods, particularly the Christian god and, and the you know monotheistic religions, uh, the Norse gods were not immortal. Um, they would eventually all die. And so there was a sense in... Uh, the Norse mythology and the Norse religion that everything was fleeting. If the gods don't live forever, of course you're not going to. And so there's a sense of, you know, kind of enjoy these things while you can because they won't always be there. Um, later on, you can see this come up in a lot of other literatures that come later in the English period and, and in Italian literature often referred to as, you know, the carpe diem poems, the seize the day. Um, the idea that, you know, you've got to grab what you can now because it's going to be gone. Uh, but in this passage, when he's talking about it, he says, Here money is fleeting, here friend is fleeting, here man is fleeting, here kinsman is fleeting. All the foundations of this world turn to waste. Um, and so he's sort of coming to terms with this idea that, you know, no matter what, he's not going to have these things forever. So it's sort of a consolation, um, the, uh, the, you know, idea that this was all inevitable, that this happens to everyone, this happens all the time. Uh, and this is a very different uh, kind of philosophical outlook. This is a philosophical outlook that you're kind of doomed from the start, uh, and um, there's no sense in... Uh, obsessing about it too much because that's just the way things are. Okay, I'm going to break off for there. Um, one of the things that as we go through the different pieces of literature from the different time periods, I do want to bring out the different cultures and sort of how some of these look back to the earlier traditions, like we did with this one where I talked about, you can see elements of the Norse tradition coming out um, and how they kind of... Uh, look forward to things that uh, follow after them. All right. I hope all of you are doing well and staying safe, and I will talk to you all again soon.